Gabriel, how are you? Very well, and where are you? I'm down the road in Hong Kong, but I think this is the easiest way for us to connect during your busy time. Shall we jump into it? Absolutely. This is the China Current. I'm James Chow. There is not one word that captures Gabriel Lung, an epidemiologist who was instrumental in the SARS response, a former Undersecretary for Health in Hong Kong, current Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Hong Kong, and a member of the ongoing WHO Joint Mission for COVID-19. He is critical to multiple levels of the response, as the outbreak that centered in Wuhan now seeps its way to almost every part of the planet. The story, like the virus, is new, fast-moving, and changing. So I called him to unpack the nuances to help us better understand, better prepare, and better act. Gabriel, I want to start off with what you said the other day. You said the whole point of epidemic control is to flatten the peak. So that, in your words, societies and hospitals don't get overwhelmed. So the first question is an obvious one: Has the peak flattened? So in mainland China, the first wave is all but over,、um, and that is because of the whole of government, in fact, whole of society response for the entire country. So, with the possible exception of、uh, Wuhan and neighboring. Municipalities in Hubei,、um, the rest of the country, you have seen a the dramatic reduction in the daily reported new cases, and、uh, from our analysis, looking at transmissibility, the force of infection in the community is very very much reduced because of that response,、um, and I think what we should now be Alert of, as well as really very closely monitor, is that as economic activities resume, albeit gradually and in a deliberate manner, then you should be very closely watching for any first signs of recrudescence. That is, is there going to be a second wave? As the rest of society. Goes back to normal functioning, and even if there is going to be a bit of a second wave, that is only to be anticipated. And so long as it remains under control, where let's say the effective reproductive number, that is the average number of secondary cases that a typically infectious individual would transmit onto, so long as that number remains steady、uh, at below. The unity value of one, then the rest of society as well as the health system can cope. Now that's for China. For Hong Kong, we have、uh, been doing a lot of social distancing as well as personal behavioural changes. Everybody has a mask on, especially when they go outside. People have really cut back on. Going to work, flexi working hours, flexi working days,、um, home offices,、um, schools remain suspended,、um, and nobody is really going out to shopping malls or for large gatherings or even meals socially. So all that has kept our numbers relatively stable, and the effective reproductive number is just under one in Hong Kong. Which means that 
it's not eliminated it's not gone away but it's on a very slow and steady course and that's really what you see in hong kong and in many ways also mirrored in singapore um and so we just need to keep being vigilant and continue with our containment policy um as for the rest of the world um you are now beginning to see um the beginnings of the first wave that mainland china uh went through uh a month ago uh and the rest of the world in particular some countries where you've seen explosive growth of the outbreak like south korea iran italy and uh unfortunately probably also the united states because the number of deaths that's been reported so far is what is more worrying than the absolute number of new cases that's been diagnosed but that is really an artifact of um not having been testing enough uh in the earlier part of the response so that's really what the global picture is uh, at the moment you talk about behaviors what about discipline and is there such a thing as outbreak fatigue as this outbreak in mainland china and increasingly around the world continues down the time scale of course um you can't keep on suspending work school and all societal functions um effectively closing down for an indefinite period of time that is not sustainable nor is it advisable um so the big question is um given the success of the china response for its first wave um which or are the determining components of that response that can and should be adapted um uh, and modified uh, and then uh, replicated in other countries um so i think it would be silly to try and completely do a copy and paste that is not possible um and that is not feasible nor pragmatic but i think it is absolutely critical that we look at that whole package of interventions that china has been implementing then work out which of the component parts are the main drivers of that huge dramatic reduction in the force of infection and therefore then isolate those components and then see how they might be adapted to uh, other countries let's tap into another area of your work which is of course the science what do we know more about the epidemiology because understanding that surely is going to unlock all possibilities into the future well i just uh, finished uh, co-chairing the epidemiology track of the who r&d roadmap for covid-19 um just a few days ago and there are really four areas one is transmissibility which we've talked a lot about two is severity and the flip side of that is susceptibility um and then um the last bit is really uh an assessment of the measures uh that is the interventions so we've talked about the transmissibility we've talked talked about the assessment of the impact of those interventions so on to severity and susceptibility so let's take severity um 
simply dividing the total number of deaths by the total number of confirmed new cases as reported at any single point in time in an expanding epidemic is going to lead you to the wrong answer. Um, it's wrong because it takes about two to three weeks, as best as we can tell, in order to have resolution of what may happen to somebody who is infected. Resolution in terms of, is this person going to survive and recover, or is this person going to die of the infection? So simply taking a denominator of confirmed new cases who haven't had time to, quote unquote, resolve that clinical outcome, and then using that as the denominator is not going to give you the right answer. So it requires careful statistical or mathematical adjustment. Um, and um, the answer is probably going to be closer to 1.4%. And that would be the case fatality ratio amongst all symptomatic cases. What we don't know yet is how large the completely asymptomatic portion of that clinical iceberg is. So again, the second thing that we need to watch out for whenever a number gets thrown about is what is the, what is the denominator population you're talking about? So generally there are three levels. One is amongst everybody who's infected. And in order to have a, a reasonable estimate of the total number of infected, you would need to have good age stratified serological studies. These are being rolled out um, in mainland China, uh, but the field work has not been completed yet. So we don't anticipate that we will have an answer for a few weeks. Then the next level up is symptomatics. And those are fairly easy to identify so long as they don't exceed your surge capacity for testing in your labs. And then the third level would be everybody who's hospitalized, who's sick enough to be hospitalized. So clearly, when you go up from one level to another, you will get a higher and higher case fatality risk. And that's what we're talking about with severity. And finally, susceptibility goes to the very important question, I, for example, of should we close schools? Mainland China, Hong Kong, Japan, and then as of yesterday, Italy, have all closed schools. In the UK, especially some of the independent schools have voluntarily and quite deliberately chosen to close uh, or suspend classes because they've had uh, very close contacts with confirmed cases. So the big question is, are children really susceptible? Because if you look at the reported case numbers, children seem to be relatively spared. But does it mean that they are not susceptible? Or does it mean that they are equally susceptible, but they don't present as very ill patients and therefore they're being missed? Or if they are susceptible, then are they infective? That is, do they go on to infect others? Do they spread it to others? Like in flu, children are a very important group of that transmission matrix. And if they are like flu, infective or even particularly infective, then closing schools would be the right thing to do. So should but parents be concerned then, Gabriel? Until you get good age stratified serology, you're not going to get that answer.
I want to ask you also about the denominator. You said that we need to rethink the denominator. Does that therefore indicate that we need to rethink other approaches to how we are calculating? Well, the approaches are out there, but it's just that because it is such an important number, uh, we are fighting an infodemic as well as an epidemic. Um, and so you get a lot of um, almost off the cuff, bordering on cavalier comments on, oh, the CFR is this, the CFR is that, without really explaining the context. And without that context, the number is meaningless. And it either generates additional public panic uh, or it puts people in a place of complacency, neither of which are desirable as we go through this very difficult time for the entire world. How much does that panic and anxiety and unhelpful comments, as you put it, distract from the work of science, which has to be the underpinning work of any outbreak? Well, uh, as of late, and by that I mean in the last couple of election cycles, in most of, let's say, even just the liberal democracies of the world, uh, but really globally, uh, we have seen a an apparent repudiation of science, of experts, of common sense, really. Uh, and this wave of populism bordering on nativism uh, that outright rejects science and reason is never helpful uh, as the world now fights this global outbreak. You've long been a critical asset to organisations like WHO, but particularly in this ongoing and current response. You were obviously a contributor to the science and R&D meeting that happened a couple of weeks ago. And going forward, more recently, you've been an integral part of the joint mission over in mainland China. What can you share from that particular mission? I think that I've learned such a huge amount. First and foremost, the co-leads uh, of that mission were absolutely inspirational figures. So Bruce Aylward from the WHO and uh, uh, Dr. Liang Wannian from the Chinese Ministry or the National Health Commission. Both are very well-known, well-acknowledged veterans of fighting outbreaks. Um, and I, as well as others, have learned so much from them uh, and been inspired by them. But I can only speak for myself. Um, I think that whatever little that I may have been able to contribute to that process, which is a very thorough week-long process preceded by a Sentinel team uh, that went before us to prepare the way um, and followed by really the publication of the bilingual report. I think that the whole process has been very rigorous, very robust, and I think the report that has come out uh, has and will continue to help the global outbreak and to inform what countries may consider doing um, arising from the new, new knowledge that has been gained as a result of that particular mission, uh, in large part based on the superb investigation that has been done by the Chinese authorities. 
there's been a lot of question around the capacity and uh, and the willingness of the Chinese authority to deliver on this outbreak. You've been asked about it many times, I'm sure. As someone who's been a part of it, as a first-hand participant in this international joint mission, what do you say? I, I would just echo what uh, Bruce has said many, many times, most recently in the New York Times interview, uh, that it is a very scientifically driven process informed by field exposures, um, not only to hospitals, uh, but also clinics, to wet markets, to different parts of the country, uh, to the epicenter in Wuhan, as well as to uh, the south, to the north, um, and um, really having a lot of input uh, looking at what the Chinese have done uh, and continue to do, um, and coming up with a report that has been endorsed by all 25 of us who were members of that commission. People seem to think that this is somehow the first time that China has worked with the world because it's a new outbreak. But of course, there's been a long established scientific collaboration between international partners, not only WHO and Chinese CDC, for example, and the health Commission, was that experience on the team a very free-flowing exchange? Absolutely, and it, it goes beyond the health sector. So in each of the provinces that we visited, the provincial governor uh, and all the relevant government departments uh, all came and all really pitched in with supplying information, with showing uh, us data um, and really with, uh, you know, providing access for us to ask questions. Um, and uh, that's really been very helpful. And I think that you do need a whole of government and a whole of society approach to fighting a global epidemic of this scale and speed. The backdrop behind you is a reminder of the many different areas in which you work. Of course, you're speaking from Hong Kong University, where you're the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine. You also have a political background as a former Undersecretary for Food and Health. You're a scientist, and you've been a big part of the global response on this. Where would you say to families and individuals in countries that are now experiencing the spread of the outbreak, in countries maybe like Norway and Switzerland, but also Iran and Italy, as you mentioned before, what would you advise them to do both on the community level, but also on government level? I think that uh, the government level is easy. It's a whole of government approach uh, because it does take uh, across the board action uh, from uh, making sure that finances work, that there is swift mobilization of the necessary funds and people uh, so that you could get the necessary resources to the places that need them and quickly. Um, in addition, you do need the Home Affairs Department or the Civil Affairs Department to make sure that needs of society beyond health are well looked after, that what come may, you do need to have the rest of societal functions really working. Um, uh, of course, health is a very important and the central part of it. Uh, but you do need, for example, if you are going to have 
um, temperature screening at the border. You need your immigration and customs departments all on board. You need your uh, airlines to be adherent to infection control policies. You need your train stations to be on side. So a whole of government approach uh, is really what is called for and absolutely necessary. Uh, as for civil society, uh, the press, the media, they all have a role in making sure that voices are heard from every quarter of society. Because what I fear uh, with this particular disease is that we may be at risk of committing, either by commission or omission, um, a huge health inequity. If my fears are borne out globally, um, the fatalities or the mortality rate or risk is going to track quite closely with per capita availability of ventilators and ICU beds. Does that necessarily and, mean then that more fragile health systems are more at risk or not necessarily? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if, if my worst fears are borne out, then it would be a huge inequity. Uh, and we need to recognize that upfront and protect those who are most vulnerable. Um, so that's really for civil society, for the media, and for uh, communities to really make sure that they provide that third voice, fourth voice, and fifth voice. Um, and then for individuals, um, it's only right to be alert. It's understandable and only human to be anxious, but um, try to stay calm, try to listen to voices of science and reason. Uh, don't panic, whatever you do, um, and just be sensible with practicing good hand hygiene, as well as try to make sure that you avoid large social gatherings, crowded places, and if you must go to these events, protect yourself and protect others, put on a mask. Um, and um, let's work together um, and get through this. It's going to be a difficult patch for the next several months, is my guess. And um, hopefully, then we will start seeing some of the results of the drug trials, whether it's repurposed existing drugs or new drugs. Um, and hopefully we will continue to hear good progress on the vaccine front. I don't want to ask you simplistic questions, but very briefly, uh, you are one of the people who has to travel physically. You're part of the response in different ways. What precautions do you take when you travel? And for people who are worried about traveling right now for their business, for their family, what do you say to them? And what do you do? Well, the first thing I say to anybody who asks me to go somewhere else is, must I? Um, uh, and then the second thing that I would do if I really have to travel is to make sure that I bring sufficient PPE so that I do not impose on my hosts in providing them. Uh, and thirdly, while I'm en route, on board or in a train carriage or in a coach, um, make sure that I uh, clean uh, the seat that I sit in uh, because uh, you can't expect, uh, for example, uh, airplane crew 
uh, or cleaning staff to do complete disinfect disinfection with a very short turnaround time. Um, and uh, so other than cleanliness, I make sure that I put on a mask uh, when I go, especially on long haul flights, um, uh, and um, make sure that um, I do good hand hygiene. Um, and when I get there, then um, I just live a normal life as I would back home, uh, except, of course, to remind everybody uh, around me as well as myself that we must be universally cautious for respiratory uh, droplet infections. So if you sort of take that with you, then you should be reasonably safe. I have to ask you, since you've traveled, as you said, on several long haul flights, once you reach the other destination or in process in that journey, have you experienced yourself any of the xenophobia that people have been talking about or more simply the stigma associated with this region right now? I have not personally experienced it, but I have read reports and very real reports of such. Um, All I can say is... um, this is not a Chinese disease. This is not a Korean disease. This is not an Italian disease. This is not an Iranian disease. This is not an American disease. This is a disease that is now sweeping the world and we're all in the same boat. Uh, And only with that sense of equity and solidarity can we all get through this. Can you imagine? I don't think we even mentioned the word SARS once, which is, of course, your great specialty from the early 2000s. But I want to finish off with this by looking ahead, not only to the next outbreak of a disease epidemic or pandemic, but looking ahead in general over at Hong Kong University, you'll be leading a special online course on epidemics later this month. We're in March 2020. What would you be imparting based on the very rich experience that you've earned over these decades? What do you think will be essential for that next generation of leaders in outbreaks to take away with them? Well, it's actually a course that we've offered for, I think, five years now. So it's not a new course, but we will have special modules uh, on COVID-19. But every time that there is a, a worldwide outbreak, like the last time that we had an additional module was on uh, West Africa Ebola outbreak. Um, And at that time, um, we had um, several people, uh, Peter Piot being one of them, uh, filming uh, that additional module. At this time, uh, I have had the privilege of repaying his debt. I was actually in London uh, at his school uh, just last week, and uh, he got me to uh, do a special module for the London School MOOC, uh, which uh, which I very happily did. Uh, so yes, we very much look forward to this knowledge exchange and really sharing again in solidarity. Um, and what we will be covering and have always covered in that particular MOOC uh, are the basic building blocks of the epidemiology and the outbreak investigation. Um, and uh, hopefully that would either just interest the lay uh, person who might be quarantined or just trying to stay home with the home office uh, arrangements or for uh, school children uh, who um, are otherwise, uh, uh, you know, staying home because the schools have been suspended. Um, So that might be something of general interest or for uh, some of the graduate students uh, who might actually find that this could be useful 
to uh, formulating their graduate theses. So we can all theoretically participate? Of course, of course. This is an all of Gabriel response to this. Peter Piot is a very special person who has contributed greatly to the world, as are you and as do you. Gabriel Leung, thank you very much. The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media, at The China Current, and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you.